Sorry. Just trying to find my sermon. Right, well, uh, I wonder whether you are a team sport person or an individual sport. Uh, I used to play basketball, cricket, rugby. Uh, They're all about the team. And one of the things I liked about team sports was it didn't matter if I had a bad day, our team could still win and I could enjoy that. It didn't all depend on me and it was just fun being part of a team. Uh, These days I swim and I cycle, which are really individual sports. Now, if you're having a bad day in those sports, there's really no one else to blame but yourself, and there's no one to help you uh, either, no one to support you. And some people think that the Christian life is more like the second, more like an individual sport than a team sport. Uh, Perhaps it's a certain type of traditional churchgoer uh, who reverently uh, and silently focuses on God, uh, who looks straight ahead, who thinks it's uh, slightly wrong for anyone to talk in church or for there to be any noise, Uh, and then who leaves as soon as the service is over. Or perhaps it's someone who's attracted to big showy churches, Uh, a person who goes there searching for the experience, Uh, perhaps the music or the lights or the band. Uh, And they're not so much interested in the people who are around them. It's all about them and God. Or or another type of person who thinks Christianity is an individual sport is is the church, uh, the church, uh, the steeplechaser, the church sampler, someone who jumps from one church to the next, who who tastes this and who tries out that, who knows where the best preaching is and where the best music is and where the best coffee's served, and they're happy to just soak it up, to take but never give. Or maybe it's someone who who doesn't actually attend church at all, who says he's a Christian but not into church, who likes Jesus but just not Jesus' followers. Now, for these sorts of people, their version of Christianity is that it's an individual sport rather than a team one. But that's not what we see in these verses of Romans, is it? Here we see Paul travelling all over the place He's at the very frontiers of Christianity. He's pushing back the frontiers, sometimes in prison. He's travelling, sometimes in distress, persecuted, sick. He's single. He's got no fixed address. There's no family we know of. He's always on the move. He's leaving one church behind to start another. Now, surely if there's anyone whose Christianity is an individual one, it's Paul. But that's not what we see. Instead, we see that he's never alone. He's never unsupported. Uh, These verses show us partners and co-workers, supporters and prayers and givers. We see brothers and sisters. Now, that's the reality of the normal Christian life. That's the sort of life that we're all called to. Even though our lives are probably going to look a lot different to Paul's, even though we're probably more like those normal people who were part of Paul's team, The reality is when God calls us to himself, he calls us to be part of a team. Uh, We see it in our Presbyterian uh, church government. When you become, when you're baptised, you're not just baptised and joined to Jesus, you're baptised into church membership. The two go together. 
God calls us uh, to be part of a team, to both support and be supported, to play our part. All sorts of different ways, ways that we see in today's passage. Uh, back in chapter 12, Paul gave us a theory about the church being a body with different parts and each one doing a different job. Well, now we see what that looks like in practice. They're, they're fascinating verses. We've seen his teaching, now we see his life. So what's the game that Paul's playing? What's the game that Paul's playing? If, uh, his, if Christianity is a team sport and we're part of the team, what's the sport? What's the point? What are the rules? What's the objective? Well, for Paul and for us, it's the gospel. Uh, that's the aim and the goal, the good news about Jesus. We've seen it right from the, the, the opening verses of his letter. Paul's job is proclaiming the message about Jesus, specifically to the Gentiles. Uh, you can see it in verse 16 of chapter 15. I hope you're following along. Chapter 15 of Romans, verse 16. The gift God gave Paul is to be a minister of Christ Jesus to the Gentiles with the priestly duty of proclaiming the gospel of God so that the Gentiles might become an offering acceptable to God, sanctified by the Holy Spirit. It's a fascinating description of his life. He used to be a Pharisee. He focused on the law, he focused on the sacrifices of the temple. All of his life was about how to be acceptable to God. But then he found out it was all a waste and none of it worked, none of it was effective. And instead he found a better way. He found another way. And so for the last 20 years or so, he's had a different calling. Not to the law, but he's had a priestly duty of presenting the gospel. Not to Jews anymore, but to Gentiles. And not involved in the sacrifices of dead animals, but instead Gentiles offering their lives as living sacrifices, holy and acceptable to God. So that's Paul's identity, his purpose and his mission. Now Paul's taken that good news about Jesus, he's taken it to all sorts of places, uh, to all sorts of people. Down in verse 19 he says, From Jerusalem all the way to Illyricum I've fully proclaimed the gospel of Christ. Uh, now we've got a map here which uh, will show you. So he starts in Jerusalem and Jerusalem's down on the bottom, bottom right, your bottom right, and Illyricum is there, uh, sort of above Greece, it's modern-day Croatia, uh, really, and Rome is just a bit further west, which you can see there. Now, in the three missionary journeys that Acts tells us about, uh, you can see all of those travels. He's gone just about as far as he can go in all of those regions. He's never been to Rome, though. Yet, every region, every major city has had the opportunity to hear about Jesus. And lots of those places he establishes churches in. Now, God's done amazing things in Paul. If that's his CV, it's pretty incredible, isn't it? Paul could sit back, rest on his laurels and just be proud of what he's achieved. But he wants to give all of the honour and the glory to Jesus instead. Everything Paul's achieved has been through Jesus' power. Do you notice in verse 17? Have a look at verse 17. Therefore, I glory, it's actually boast, I boast in Christ Jesus in my service to God. I will not venture to speak of anything 
accept what Christ has accomplished through me in leading the Gentiles to obey God by what I've said and done, by the power of signs and miracles, through the power of the Spirit. All of that is of Christ and it's not of Paul. He could feel like he's due a holiday. Uh, He could feel like it's time to retire and pass the baton on to someone else. There's been no one like him. He's suffered so much. He's achieved so much. Surely he at least deserves some long service leave. Is that what he's thinking? Well, no, the whole reason he's writing this letter to the Romans is because he wants to push those borders even further. He wants to be used by Christ in even more situations and unreached areas. Verse 20, age has not dampened his ambition at all. Look at verse 20. It has always been my ambition to preach the gospel where Christ was not known so that I would not be building on someone else's foundation. Now normally in job interviews, uh, older applicants get overlooked. I know a few of you guys have experienced something like that. Often the employer assumes that they're not energetic or ambitious anymore. But not Paul. He's as hungry as he's ever been. It's always been my ambition. So we've seen that he's boasting and he's ambitious. Now often they're not good qualities, we would say, for for a Christian at least. But here, for Paul, they're great things to have. Paul's whole life is centred on Jesus and making him known. He may be closer to the end of his life than the beginning, but he wants to make a difference. That's his ambition, to be a groundbreaker, to be a pioneer. And we get some insight into his travel plans there in verse 23. But now that there's no more place for me to work in these regions, and since I've been longing for many years to see you, I plan to do so when I go to Spain. I hope to visit you while passing through and to have you assist me on my journey there after I've enjoyed your company for a while. Now, he's been to lots of the places to the east of, uh, of Rome. He's never been to Spain, though. And Spain is full of people who need Jesus. So that's where he's headed. So that's Paul's game. But Paul can't do that on his own. This is a game that needs a team. Proclaiming the gospel to the Gentiles is a team sport. And so as Paul winds up his letter, we are going to see a whole lot of practical details that show the teamwork that Paul needs. They show us the team members, they show us the team tasks. And if Paul hadn't needed a team, the letter of Romans almost certainly wouldn't have been written. He's writing this because he needs a team. He sums it all up in verse 30 of chapter 15, where he says, I urge you, brothers, by our Lord Jesus Christ and by the love of the Spirit, to join me in my struggle. Join me in my struggle, brothers. People he's never met, people from different backgrounds and experiences, different culture, but Paul calls them brothers. They're part of the family. They all belong to Jesus. They're all serving Jesus. And so they're connected, they're brothers and sisters. And Paul invites them to join him as he struggles. He can't do it by himself. Share the load, struggle with him. And that happens in all sorts of different ways. The first of which we saw there in verse 24, he needs a support base. Now it's something we've seen all the way through the book of Acts. Paul pushes out into each of his three missionary journeys uh, from Antioch. 
and uh, you can see Antioch uh, there, just above uh, Jerusalem. So Antioch there, that was his support base. Uh, he would begin there and he would leave on his travels uh, and that church would commission him, send him out with financial support and they'd pray for him. Then he would come back at the end of his, his journey and he'd report to them all that God had done. Now we do the same thing today when we send missionaries out. Uh, we did it with Diego. We commissioned him before he returned to Ecuador. Uh, and we support him and we pray for him and hopefully he'll be back soon and uh, report how he's been going. But now Paul wants to push even further afield and Antioch is just too far away to be his, that base. Uh, he needs to get to Spain and so Rome is going to be uh, do that same job that Antioch has done. They're going to be the stepping stone uh, to Spain. Now this is partly why he goes into such detail for the first 11 chapters with all the theology about the message that he's going to preach so that the Roman Christians will know exactly what sort of expedition they're supporting and the sort of message that he's going to take to Spain. But Paul's interested in more than just a commissioning service. In part, he expects their financial support. That's at least partly what it means in verse 24, that he hopes they'll assist him on his way. He doesn't just want a fare thee well, he, he wants a handout. He needs some help to get there so he can focus on preaching and not have to worry about earning his income. But it's not just himself Paul wants support for. He's actually travelling around collecting money to help Christians in Jerusalem. And you can see that there in verse 25. His plans to get to Spain. Now, however, I'm on my way to Jerusalem in the servants of the saints there. Macedonia and Achaia, so that's in Greece where he is at the moment, uh, they were pleased to make a contribution for the poor among the saints in Jerusalem. They were pleased to do it, and indeed they owe it to them, for if the Gentiles have shared in the Jews' spiritual blessings, they owe it to the Jews to share with them their material blessings. There are Christian brothers and sisters in need back in Jerusalem. And so part of being part of the family or being a team member is to financially support those who need it. Now the Greeks, the Macedonians, the Achaeans, they were happy to help out. Uh, helping people they'd never met because that's what family does. They were happy to help. Do we give our money with that same attitude? Do we give our time and our energy with that same attitude? Do we give it with a sense of responsibility because that's the family, that's our team? You just help family, even if we don't see any direct benefit to us. Uh, Paul didn't just need fin uh, financial support, though. He needs prayer support. Uh, it's there in verse 30 that we read already. Uh, Join me in my struggle by praying to God for me. Pray that I may be rescued from the unbelievers in Judea, that my service in Jerusalem may be acceptable to the saints there, so that by God's will I may come to you with joy and together with you be refreshed. Now, you might argue that the Roman Christians and Paul were not really connected. They're not really part of the same body. They'd never met. In what sense did they, could they be joined to him? But Paul says, no, join with me. Prayer joins brothers and sisters. It connects them. 
Prayer highlights those things we have in common, our common Lord, our common purpose. In prayer, we struggle with those who struggle. We grieve with those who grieve. We give thanks with those who give thanks. From a distance, we join with brothers and sisters as we pray for Danny and the Petersham congregation, only a few kilometres away, but we struggle with them as they grow a new church. A lot further away, we join with Mike and Katie Taylor in Tanzania and we praise God for the good news about Mike's work permit has been renewed. And we've been praying for that for most of this year. We rejoice with Diego. We believe that God will use his word so that people will trust in Jesus alone rather than in Mary or the saints. And we rejoice with Diego when we see these small steps of progress. Did you notice 2 verse 31 how Paul's requests are specific? He prays for deliverance from enemies. He prays for a warm welcome from the Christians in Jerusalem. He prays that the collection would be useful. He prays that he'd eventually make it to see the Christians in Rome and they'd both be refreshed. Now they're all quite specific things. Are your prayers specific? I must admit sometimes I'll just sort of pray that God will bless so and so. Or sometimes I'll even just say, I pray for so and so. Well, what's that? Sometimes that's just lazy. It's hard to join with someone if, if your prayers are just general. That's why we receive prayer updates. It's why we go to the trouble of listing prayer points in the bulletin so that we can pray specifically and join with those brothers and sisters. Can I encourage you to do that, to use them? Uh, print them out. Don't leave them on your computer. Uh, put them in your Bible. Leave them on the kitchen table so that you can pray through them after dinner. It's one of the ways we join together. As we move into chapter 16, can I just say how well Laurie did? That was, that was one of the tougher readings of the, of the year, I think, all of those names. Uh, and Neil's got a whole bunch of dad jokes about what each of those, some of those funny names are doing. Andronicus, Coffee, Narcissus. Anyway, I'm sure you can come up with your own. But if you just scan your eye down that page, chapter 16... Uh, at a very superficial level, just notice the sheer number of people who get to mention. Now, don't forget, Paul's actually never been to Rome. And these are all the people he knows who are in Rome, verses 3 to 16. He asks the church to receive Phoebe when she arrives, verse 1. She's probably delivering the letter. She's a servant of the church in Corinth, where Paul's writing. But then he starts listing all of the names, the people he's met in his travels and who've ended up in Rome. After all, all roads lead to Rome. Now, there are a few things that stand out to me. Firstly, there's lots of fellow workers, co-workers, people who work for a common aim, brothers in the best sense of the word. Now, that's always encouraging to have someone standing beside you. Uh, a few uh, weeks when we have open church, I'm here on my own. It's a bit, it's a bit uh, sad, it's not great, but it's always lots of fun when there's more people around, when Paul turns up or Owen or Peter, or Peter and Cindy. It's great to have people standing beside you, co-workers. Well, verse 3, there's Priscilla and Aquila, fellow workers. Verse 9, there's Urbanus, 
Uh, he's the city dweller, our, our fellow worker in Christ. Uh, verse 21, Timothy, Paul's fellow worker. Now something else that jumps out at me is how hard, uh, hard those people worked and their commitment. Notice verse 4, Priscilla and Aquila risked their lives. Or verse 6, Mary who worked very hard. Verse 7, Andronicus and Junius have been in prison with Paul. Verse 12, Trophina and Trophosa, they worked hard. So did Persis. Now specifically, one aspect of that hard work is uh, hospitality jumps out at me as well. Church in those days didn't have a dedicated building. Uh, They met in people's homes. Uh, Wealthy people who had houses big enough to host lots of people. Uh, People like Priscilla and Aquila in Rome, verse 5 tells us that the church meets in their house. Or flip to the other end of chapter 16, back in Corinth, Paul's writing a letter, but uh, Gaius uh, hosts the church in Corinth. Look at verse 23. Gaius, whose hospitality I and the whole church here enjoy, send you his greetings. That's great, isn't it? So just imagine him in between setting up the chairs and cooking dinner and answering the door as people arrive. Gaius says hi. Hospitality is a wonderful way to show your teamwork, to join with people in their struggle. Hospitality doesn't have to be fancy. In fact, the people I reckon who do hospitality the best, the people who are the most welcoming and the most generous, quite often have simple meals in houses that are often disorganised. But the love is there and the welcome and the generosity. That's what makes hospitality special. Some people I know here in our church are creative about how they do it. One person in our church takes people out to dinner, organises picnics, because he recognises he's not a great cook and his house doesn't really suit visitors. Another person, some of you may know, is very generous, buying pizza and cakes at church events. That's hospitality. That's great. Now, as I think about some of those examples in chapter 16, it's those same sorts of things that you encourage me with by being co-workers together, turning up to open church with me on a Wednesday so I'm not there on my own, when I watch someone jump up to make coffee even when they're not rostered, or turn up early to practice music, or teach Sunday school without fanfare year after year, or the way that... uh, People have donated anonymously thousands of dollars to help Diego buy a car. That's been encouraging. So can I encourage you to keep looking out for one another? Keep being brothers and sisters. Keep noticing who's not around. Keep speaking to newcomers. Keep making that phone call or sending that text. Keep praying for people. They're the things that result in us joining together in the struggle the struggle of following Jesus, the struggle of sharing the gospel, the sorts of things that show in practical ways that we're brothers and sisters and that build uh, our closeness and the depth of our family relationship. So I urge you, brothers and sisters, in Paul's words, to join together in the struggle. Let me finish with, once again, his words in verse 33 of chapter 15. May the God of peace be with you all. Amen.
Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we pray. Uh, we've, we've heard Paul speak. We pray that uh, his life might speak to us uh, and that you would help us uh, to join with one another, to join with those uh, who are our brothers and sisters here, but also further afield, that your kingdom might grow and Jesus might be honoured. Amen.